podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey, welcome to episode three of the Barbless Podcast with us tonight. Our first guest, Darren Rochlow. 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 <laughs> it's very French. <laughs> Damn it. I, I rehearsed it three times, but... No, Rochlow oh. was right. I was just messing so, with you. Darren, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like, what's your background? What do you do? I see. Well, uh, mid-30s, almost to my midlife crisis, so that's always good. But uh, <laughs> I'm a fisheries biologist with Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission. Uh basically do fisheries work, uh, study sturgeon primarily, but I've dipped a little bit into the salmonid world. But uh, over the last five, six years, I've stuck primarily with uh, with sturgeon. So Nice. On the Feather River? Primar- yeah, now Feather River, but uh, I used to spend a lot of time uh, sturgeon fishing and doing research on the Sac- Sacramento as well. So. so, yeah, I mean, we've been talking about the Feather a lot, obviously because of Oroville Spillway. Um what are your thoughts on just like what's happened in the last like couple of months, three months? Well, I definitely say the the state dodged a bullet. We had a pretty close call with the uh, possible breach of uh, the emergency spillway of the dam, which could have had cata- catastrophic consequences for all the people living down below. But uh, they were able to manage to hold it off, and I mean they got their work cut out for them here, trying to get that spillway repaired before the next uh, next rainy season. It's not over, is it? No, it's not over yet. I don't think it's over. Yeah, I got a, I got a cousin that that's like um, doing, you know, he's basically drives heavy equipment and they're busy all summer trying to like repair that thing. Oh yeah, it's a good time to be a uh, truck driver or anyone working at a quarry. Oh, yeah. So are you, so you guys think there's going to be another another system coming in that's going to push the number the water up again? Well, the amount of snowpack they have up there is it's quite a bit. I think oh. it's like somewhere in the 160, 170% of uh So we're talking the average spring yeah. runoff then. Yes, but uh, they're doing a pretty good job keeping keeping the lake low and allowing enough room for that water to come in. So what do you think about, um, you know, what's the impact to the fishery given how much water has moved through there in the last, like, couple months? Well, during the uh, the early phases when the water was just starting to go over the emergency spillway, the, the turbidity was just out of, you know, out of this world and to the point where they actually had to remove fish from the Orville fish hatchery and move them to a auxiliary site, um, just because they're getting choked basically yeah. with all the muddy water. So, yeah, I saw, I saw that. So I, I thought that they were moving them because that it was running into the actual hatchery, but that's not the case. It's just their, the gills can't process the water cause it's just so chalked up. Is yep. that right? Okay. Yeah. Once you have that much turbidity, the, uh, the uh, oxygen levels dropped quite a bit. And then the flows oh, wow. dropped significantly to where there was 
fish hanging out in, in pools of water on the outside of the river. That was that was just pretty to get wild. a break. Yeah. Well, as wow. they they had to drop the flows incredibly fast because they wanted to fix it. Yeah. Um, well, they were worried about that lower flows going over the spillway had more of a, uh, a degradative effect on the spillway itself. Um, like the water not flying off the end of it like a slide, you know, like yeah, going yeah. off a sl- slippery slide. Uh, it was just rolling off and kind of cutting back underneath it. So uh, they didn't they didn't slow it down like they normally would, which would you know take a, a few days uh, to bring the water back down. But uh, they just dropped it incredibly fast, and I was uh, had the pleasure of being out there when they did it. It was it was pretty apocalyptic to say yeah. the least. You're out there, and all of a sudden the water's eight feet lower, like within an hour and a half, two hours. That is nutty. That's yeah. why you look at the schedule releases on the sack right now, and you'll yeah. see from. Right now, till May, the first week of May, they're they're just slowly releasing those, you know, cutting the flows back. So they're worried about that. Darren, like, how much has the topology of the river changed from prior, you know, pre-flood to post-flood? Uh, it's really tough to tell right now because the the water's still way way higher than what we're used to. Like, I think right now it was like right around thirty-five thousand, but when they drop it back down, they're only going to like twelve to fifteen thousand. And in a typical year, just say the last couple of years, um, the average flows during non-delivery times in the in the rivers right around a thousand to twelve hundred cfs. It's it's up quite a bit. And you were talking about um, you know these high water seasons. Both of you guys were actually about high water seasons and how that affects salmon runs down the road two three years out, and by virtue of steelhead runs. Yep. So you, can you guys like unpack that a bit for us? Well, uh, well, when you look at salmon, they're one of the only things that can bring nutrients back up to the river systems. Uh, so what you have is in, in years like this, you have the, uh, I like to call it the douching effect, where uh, all the nutrients left behind from the, the previ- or the, all the years previous with all the salmon dying and all their nutrients building up, uh, that gets, a, gets flushed back out to the ocean, kind of fertilizing the ocean just like a farmer would add nitrogen to his So when you're, his talking, when you're talking about nutrients, you're talking about basically decomposition of the carcass yes itself okay wow just like fertilizer and it and it washes all through the system out to the ocean yep it, everything, everything and so there, there's a that. so explain that because I, I don't really steelhead salmon so trout. is it scent or what are they keeping uh, on? well if you can imagine it as a bunch of nutrients being pushed out to the ocean like if you were to look at the ocean during a, like a high water event like we had this year you'd see like a plume running a few miles out so okay. what that's doing is uh, depositing nutrients that basically feeds the bottom of the food chain from the phytoplankton into the zooplankton to the little copepods that eat them and then to the you know, larval fish and all, all the way up to the fish okay. that we like to pursue. So in the last 10 years, because there's been drought... I love when he talks dirty to me. Oh, yeah, way. man. I was like, phytoplankton? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But so in the, last, in the last 10 years, there's been, it's been, you know, it's been a drought situation, so those nutrients haven't really made it out to the mouth into the ocean is that the am i right exactly okay and if you look at three years ago we were at some of the lowest uh snow totals and just total runoff uh you know in a long time and i mean this this year we're looking at a pretty pretty dismal looking uh salmon season so that's just probably most likely a direct result of those low nutrients among other things there's just there's just so many different things that can affect uh the salmon runs so how how long roughly do you think it'll take for that ecosystem to bounce back in in terms of run numbers? Well, in three years, we should have a pretty decent run. Actually, you know, last year wasn't a horrible year. We were, we were above average water. 
So um, we were able to get some nutrients out. Nothing like this year, though. I mean, this is these are the type of the years that we want. Nice, especially for sturgeon. So, how how does that affect the uh, the bug ecosystem? Those nutrients that are getting washed out, those are the same nutrients that are going to build the food chain locally for the fish that are coming out of the gravel, like the like the the salmon and the the steelhead when they come out of the gravel. They kind of rely on the bugs that are produced from those nutrients. You know, I think it'll it'll rinse it out. It'll definitely clean the substrate. As far as bugs, it's 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 all based upon you know like the seasonal the time of the year and stuff like that. But when you say it'll clean the substrate, what do you what do you mean? A lot of rocks start rolling when you have water like this. So okay. any kind of algae built up on the rock usually gets really cleaned off, and that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of substrate you want for a good good okay. spawning. So we'll probably have to have you back once everything drops, and you can talk about the topology of the river a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for years without these dams, we've had all these the spring runoff doing the exact same thing that this year has done is, you know, cleaning the river out, and that's it's it's important for for that cycle to continue, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, if, uh, even in like a drought year, the river would still see flows of like 30 to 40 grand going down it, which might be sufficient enough to push out a lot of those nutrients. Definitely a lot more than we actually had, you know. And the feather specifically, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Like sometimes the feather, you know, the, the actual lake will have, you know, over 100,000 CFS going into it and only like a thousand dribbling out of it. So definitely. So has anybody ever cut a sturgeon on a fly run? Not that I know of, but I'm sure it could be done. Uh, you, you probably have to soak something in, like some ghost shrimp or whatever, you know. I've heard of somebody that's done it before, but I, I was just curious if you think it was possible or not. Cause hey, if you tie on some bait, yeah, of course you can catch one. They just go by scent. Yeah. How's our, do you know, like, how's our eyesight and stuff? Uh, well, they're usually in Murky River, so they don't rely on it very much. Plus, you know, their, their mouth is on the bottom of their body. So feet off the bottom. Yeah. They have barbels and they actually have, uh, they can, they can detect slight, uh, electromagnetic fields in the water off their, off their. Yeah. Kind of like a shark, uh, shark have a, what's called an ampullator and Zini cell on their, on their nose or like the little pores look like blackheads on their nose, but uh, sturgeon kind of, kind of have that going on too. So they got that and they got the taste. So they're prehistoric. They literally are prehistoric fish. Yeah. And that's what you do every day, right? You spend most of the time tracking them and trying to catch them and tag them yeah uh this time of the year with the water being up and the fish being all over the place we don't we can't really pinpoint them so we're just kind of doing uh what we call longitudinal surveys where we're just starting at up river and working our way down and just trying to see where the fish are kind of trying to settle what, what out what kind of equipment do you guys use to do stuff like that uh well locating them we use what's called a uh a ditson it's a uh, base of the world's best fish finder if uh if you're rich enough to be able to afford a hundred thousand dollar fish finder you'd be able to, uh, you know, see the fish women go back and measure them out and be like, Hey, I think I want to catch that thing. So, so you can literally see the fish moving. Yes. You can see the, you know, yeah, that's a little so bit. their fish finder is worth more than the boat. Yeah, basically it's more than, <laughs> it's more than a lot of ocean boats. That's pretty cool. Is it like color or is it 2d or, um, it's it, well, you can kind of pick the color depending on what kind of mood you're in. Of I usually, I usually go with the blue, sports. the blue screen, but, uh, yeah, um, just basically a really awesome fish finder that you can see stuff in the murkiest of waters. And do you, so does the does the fish finder tie into software that actually um, takes a census of what's in the river? No, all it really does just shows you what's swimming down below. It was developed by the uh, the Navy. Actually, no, is a is a University of Washington. I think they were 
developing with the Navy during the World War II is used to uh, detect mines that might have been placed on the sides of ships so they wouldn't have to send divers in the water. That's the whole idea. So, But now we're taking advantage of it and looking for fish. And you guys are looking at silhouette and then doing IDs based on silhouette? Yeah, I mean, the, we're pretty lucky with sturgeon because there's not too many other fish in the river that are six feet long. So once you see one, you're like, <laughs> I know that's a sturgeon. But you can't, you can't detect between species. You can't you know you don't know if it's a green or a white sturgeon but yeah okay so my you know back in the day when i was when i was in like grammar school high school my stepdad used to guide on the uh, sacramento between like princeton and calusa and i remember him bringing home like four sturgeon in the back of the truck laid out in the in the back of the truck you know i don't even know like what are the numbers these days like, can, uh, you, can you still do that? It just seems no, like they're, no, they're huge fish and it just seems like it would take forever for them to get that big. And like, what's the impact to the fishery when guys are taking that many out? And what, what is the regulations today versus say 20 years ago? Uh, well, we actually have a slot limit now. So it's basically, I mean, don't quote me on this, but it's, I think it's somewhere in like, I don't really plan on catching those things and taking them so i don't really know the number but i think it's like between 46 and 66 something like that there's a slot limit where the fish have to be uh between a certain size so they want they want uh fish that have a bit have at least spawned once that's the idea like once fish hit this certain size they've at least spawned once and they don't want anyone taking out any fish larger because usually the the larger of the sturgeon are the uh, best breeders yeah they're usually the females and those are the ones you want out there so they, they try and only allow people uh, to take a certain size. So ones that have already spawned but aren't too big to be, you know, more prolific breeders in the group. Yeah, and they're they're just, they're invertebrates, right? There's there's just one, one thing, one, one like, um, it's like a spinal column through the middle of them, like a shark. Yes. That's it. And yep. they make nice steaks. But Called a notochord. Notochord. Yeah. And uh, apparently when you clean those things, it's it's good to remove them out of there. That's like the trick it's like when you clean you got to remove that otherwise people say it taints the flavor hmm. so, so that. when they um you know when they're when they're eating on the bottom like what are they eating exactly uh probably whatever they can find they're pretty opportunistic uh i'm sure they have their favorites but uh usually they can just take a mouthful of sand or or uh or mud off the bottom and like basically push the sand out through their gills and you know filter out the sand and keep whatever you know critters are left behind whether it's you know crawdads uh, uh we get a lot of clams um i mean just anything that's buried in the in the sediment that's alive they'll they'll pretty much try and eat so so in terms of like the food chain and just the ecology of the river where do they fit into that um that's a great question um well they don't really add too much to the river as far as you know they don't they don't die after they spawn um i'd probably put them somewhere between like kind of like a a sucker fish yep yeah I mean, they're just cleaning cleaning stuff up I mean, i'm sure they clean up a bunch of dead stuff off the bottom but uh as far as where they relate i haven't really thought about that too much you guys ever fish for it with, with um I, I guess you can't but shad i mean do people use shad to catch sturgeon or that's something that you see a lot in the columbia river but uh we've tried it a few times to no avail on the on the feather in the like sack put a, literally put a hook into a shad yeah because that's what i mean they're the that system that cycle they're they're here right now and the shad are going to come up they're going to do their thing they're going to spawn and then they'll die off they they don't they don't go back like a steelhead does or you know this and this like a salmon they'll just die off and it'll be food at the bottom of the river and that's kind of what 
I so think that, they're relying on his food to eat. So do do shad run up the feather as well? Yes. So that same all that all that biomatter is still being oh, yeah. because of high water. It's like salmon, it's shad, it's anything that's coming up, spawning and dying. Yeah. It's gonna be pushed out to the river or out to the ocean. Yep. Um what is there that we haven't covered yet that you'd wanna like talk about? Hmm. Man, I could talk about anything. Uh, I like. I want to hear about his his daily what he does. Oh on a yeah, daily just basis. like a, hey, what's like, your day to day? Uh, it you know it, it changes seasonally. Um, that's the nice thing about my job. It's never the same thing every single day. But you know, I can kind of know that you know summertime. You know, I'm gonna be trying to set out uh, like egg mats or uh, D nets to try and catch larval fish or larval sturgeon. But let me back that up yeah, a little yeah, bit. What's okay, an egg mat and D mat. Uh, well, basically an egg mat looks, it just looks like a, almost like a, the old style window with like the, you know, the cross through it, you know, it's looks like a metal clamshell that we put uh hog's hair furnace filter in it and close it down. And it basically it's, it just sits on the bottom and, uh, it just catches eggs that might fall to the bottom. The whole idea is the, the hog's hair creates a lot more surface area for the eggs to adhere to. And you so, put them below reds then? Uh, we put them well below any area where we know that sturgeon have been hanging out, congregating. Yeah, I mean, do do, uh, sturgeon have reds or no? Uh, no, they're actually broadcast spawners. That means they uh, free spawners. Yeah, they they spawn in the water column, like just like Like shad shad or striper. You know, they'll be a what we call a ripe female or a gravid female, and uh, they'll they'll come in. The males can obviously smell the pheromones or whatnot, and they just basically all swim together. And uh, when she drops her eggs, they all release their milk and hope for the best <laughs> don't we all yeah <laughs> no parental duties there so yeah so you you lay down and you said d mats and what was the other one uh let's see there's egg mats and then there's a d uh, net which basically looks like a d with the flat part of the d on the bottom with like a half circle and then behind it looks what's like a windsock that has a, a mesh fine mesh netting that goes down to uh, a little a little box that uh it's like a little circular tube that has holes in it and you can take it off and you know dump all the contents of what you caught and then you know. so you, you guys you bring up you bring that up obviously and do some analysis on it yeah well we bring up the caught end that's that's the word i was looking for that's the end part of the uh what would be like the end of the windsock catching all the the eggs and stuff there's a lot of extra crap that gets caught in there but we dump it into a buck and sort it all out look for a larval sturgeon but we haven't gotten any yet on the feather so what what's a larval sturgeon uh, it's basically a, a sturgeon that has hatched out of its egg and, uh, you know, it's usually right after about seven days. Um, and then the fish will come up and it'll still be living off a, a yolk sac, but, um, basically anything that's, you know, below a certain size, I, I can't remember the exact size, but, uh, yeah, any, any of the really small ones that just come out of the gravel, that's what we're going for. I've, so I've never, it's funny you bring that up cause I've, I see 15, <laughs> Huge sturgeon, just monsters, coming up and porpoising on the top of the water. But I've never seen a baby sturgeon. Why? Uh, they're very small. It's like a needle in a haystack. I mean, you're not the only one looking for them. There's probably the government's probably spent millions of dollars looking for those things. <laughs> just very tough to come by. Like, are, do they do they drop as many eggs as say a salmon does? Or, uh, well, the you got the the green sturgeon. I God, man, I don't quote me on these numbers, but. I want to say they're going anywhere from like five to ten, ten thousand eggs. This so is this is something we're probably gonna to have to go back and look at later. I'm sure like there's quite a be, bit less than a than a salmon. Yeah, if uh, another sturgeon biologist heard this, they'd probably be calling me out on it. But 
but yeah, they uh they lay quite a, quite a few eggs. Uh, the green sturgeon they have a little bit bigger eggs than the white sturgeon, but uh they don't they don't lie as many. I've never even thought about that. I've never never thought about like a little baby sturgeon that's six to eight inches long. You know, like that just doesn't you never you never really like maybe you just don't think about it. Yeah, actually, I had a buddy that caught one a couple of years ago. It was a white sturgeon, and uh, I think it was about six inches long. And he really? caught it. Yeah, he's salmon fishing, and he caught it on a row. Yeah, well, that's the thing. You think about more people like fishing, whatever it is, bait, night crawlers, little flies, shad, darts. You would pick up something like that, but you you never see anything like that. Nah, they're they're really tough to get. Uh, on the Sacramento River, though, they they get quite a few larval sturgeon. We've never never gotten any on the feather, but we don't we don't see see nearly the numbers that uh, the sack does in a normal year. So when do you guys switch gears and and stop targeting the the sturgeon? What do you do after this kind of run slows down? Well, we do some office work. <laughs> yeah, it, no like, fishing. You don't get to go. Fish? Oh no, we we do. Uh, well, that's the larval. Uh, you know, trying to sample for larval fish is just part of what we do. But uh, we, we go out with our sonar just trying to detect them and, uh, you know, kind of keep tabs on where they're at. Um, but we also get get the fun job of going out and trying to catch them every once in a while and put a uh, an acoustic tag in them and track where they go. If you get if the listeners are like James Bond, just put a, um, a tracking beacon on, on Darren's boat and you'll know where all the, yeah, the good fishing right. is. What they call it low jack. <laughs> yeah we're basically putting a low jack on a fish but uh yeah we have uh these receivers all throughout the uh the system uh we manage the feather river system but uh there's a lot of other groups that uh that manage you know the sacramento river and then the delta and uh you know even all the way up to oregon and washington there's a group of people that uh that manage a system up there which private or uh government it's government yeah, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the, some of the sturgeon that we tag, the green sturgeon that we tag, they'll actually make their way all the way up to uh, Washington, Grays Harbor area. Yeah, that was my next question: is like, how far they do they move? So if they're going up to Washington, is that what you said? Yep, uh, even so farther sometimes. So they're going, they're going obviously out of out of the delta, and they're going up the coastline. Yep, they so usually, I think they usually ride the currents. Usually have some currents. I did, so they are freshwater and saltwater. Yes. Anadromous. Uh, yeah, the word I can't say. Anadromous. I can't say it. <laughs> say but, it. Uh, he gives me he Anad- gives me a bad time. Anad- Anadromous. <laughs> Sounded pretty good. Yeah? Yeah. It's like, say nads. So now, now I'm just like, anadromous. <laughs> I had no idea uh, Sturgeon left the river. I had no idea. I just thought they were in the river the entire time. Really? So do they, they spawn, so can they, will they spawn in multiple rivers or are they kind of like, they go to the same spot, like a salmon or a steelhead? Uh, they have pretty strong site, site fidelity, which is, you know, their ability to find the, their natal spawning ground. But, uh, they're pretty much opportunistic. I think, I think if they come up the system and, you know, they can take a left or a right at the feather or the sack, they probably just go up whatever has more water. That's usually going to draw them in. But, uh, whatever smells the best yeah it was used it was uh it was thought of for a long time that the sturgeon didn't the green sturgeon didn't come up and spawn up the feather river but uh in 2011 we were able to retrieve 13 uh, green sturgeon eggs um in the feather so that was the first time that we ever documented their them attempting to spawn so which made sense it's like why would a fish swim that far up there to not spawn you know like was that in the um those gravel screens that you guys put down Uh, we got those on the egg mats 
They, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the egg mats. Yep. So how long does it take them year-wise to grow into that slot limit that you that they that the guys can keep them? Uh, I think you're you're looking at about well, white sturgeon are the only ones you can keep. Okay. Um, I'd have to check, but I'm I'm guessing somewhere right around like ten to twelve years. Oh, wow! Before they get into that slot limit. Wow. Because that's usually I mean they want them to be able to at least spawn once and. Yeah. So um, that's usually right around when they can start spawning at like eleven or twelve years. I'm sure faster like when they raise them in captivity they can subject them to hormones. So I, I guess my next question is why why are they even allowed to keep why are they still allowed to keep them, and eat them? Uh, they probably think there's enough. But you know, we've, I've, uh, I've read some stuff that would probably suggest otherwise. Can you get into that a little more? Uh, well, Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, you know, they send out the numbers, like their estimates. But I mean, you know, all that should kind of be taken with a grain of salt. But um, it's just the numbers have been going down and down. Um, we haven't had a good year class since 2011. So that's the last time they probably had a really good. Is, is really there good any spawn. correlation with the uh, the drought? Uh, yeah, you're just not getting good spawn years. Like if we had this type of rain that we're having this year, every single year, like you'd have a, a lot better of a population coming back. So is it correct to assume that the, it's not fishing pressure that's been uh, detriment detrimental to the numbers. It's, it's more, I drought. think it's a combination of fishing pressure and the drought that would, yeah, that, and you look at the flow regimes with which they keep the river at, you know, it's not really natural. So it's a bit of, ma- of of management also then. Yes. Yeah. I mean, hmm. the natural flow regime would be, you know, the rain kicks in in October and doesn't really subside until like the end of spring. But we have our system to where when, uh, the rain, rain comes, the reservoirs are usually pretty low. And so they just fill them up, fill them up, fill them up. And, uh, usually once the summertime hits, that's when people need the water for irrigation and that's when they send it on down. So the flow regime is kind of backwards. So I, I'm personally, I'm not a, a, a um, sturgeon fisherman at all, but do you think a catch and release kind of a scenario is, you know, where we do that in the trout game? That's it, the idea. It, that's it, why it, we have that slot limit. Yeah. Something like that. Even, even if they're in the slot though, taking you photos, see it near, be letting them down, go, right? You think Do you that, think that that's something that's feasible or what's the, what, what's the mindset of the angler that, that goes after this kind of fish as far as, uh, if they keeping should be or slugging basically. Um, um, some people just, you know, just want to eat something, you know, they, they want to go out and catch something, eat it. And some people just want to look at it and let it go. I mean, sturgeon, they taste pretty good, but I mean, I personally don't think they taste good enough to kill like a 12 or 13 year old fish. I kind of feel bad. I'm like, man, this thing's been around for a while. It's like cutting down an oak tree. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of, I mean, I'm definitely a little biased since I research them and study them. You know, I find that caviar is good though. It is, but you can get that from the hatchery fish. (laughs) They got Stolt Sea Farms down there. So they have hatchery um, sturgeon? Yes. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Just the white. Caviar, so how do you how do you know the difference between like a hatchery uh, sturgeon versus a native? Well, it's, it's more green they and don't, white. They used to have so what they how they used to get the eggs. They'd go out and they'd catch these gravid females, and then they bring them to the uh, to the actual sea farm where they uh, you know they get the eggs and they try and run the hatchery to grow fish to uh, to make the caviar out of that. Um, they used to have to put back a certain amount. But now they don't put any back in there anymore, which is probably a good thing because, you know, there's people that uh, 
are really in the whole genetics thing and think of, you know, when we select for a fish, you know, when we spawn two fish together, that's not natural at all. You know, how do we, how do we know what that female sturgeon would find attractive in, you know, well, I guess it's sturgeon is different than broadcast spawners. Everybody's got a turn there, but you know, like with salmon, salmon is a prime example, you know, like, like what does a female salmon see in this male that says, Hey, you know, I want you to be my mate. You know, you can't replicate that. The hatchery, two, you know guy, that two guys squirting their bellies together. Broadcast spawner is now in my dictionary. <laughs> nice. You will hear that again, Nick. I like, it. I like it. Use it with caution. Oh yeah. Why don't we talk uh, about sturgeon a lot? I, why I don't we talk, talk to him about, about, about striper fly fishing? You fly fish, right? Uh, nothing like Nick. I've, I've done it, but well, I know. don't either, but yeah, no one does. In, in Chico that I know of, but yeah, no one fly fishes like Nick. Yeah. Where do you, when you, when you do, you do fly fish though. Yeah. Where do you, bit. maybe not where do you go, but what, like what kind of, I guess where you go is appropriate, right? Or no? No. Yeah. Where, where yeah. do you like to go? Where yeah, do you like, like to go where, fly fishing? Most of my fly fishing experience has just been done doing our, uh, our steelhead, steelhead, uh, studies where we go out and catch them when no one else can go and catch them. Well, that's a shitty job. Yeah, let's, yeah. let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so dude, that's awesome. You like to, you go float the feather right before January 1st and <laughs> Man, it's, catch, catch them all before we do. <laughs> well, I don't know if I like people knowing that. Uh, no, I, I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that. But uh, nowadays there's, there's other people in our office that get that fun task. You know, I got a pretty fun job. So I'll let them do that every once in a while. The younger guys come in and fish, but, uh, yeah, most of my experience fly fishing has just been on the uh, the Feather River, just working on our study. So when are they going to drop the flows to get down to fishing levels? You said that once the lake reaches like 860 feet. Yeah, I want to say that might... 850 right around there is when they, they can't use that spillway anymore. Um, so they, they get it down to there, and then they're just going to you know let the flows go out via the bottom of the dam. The, I spring, think... oh, okay. the spring steelhead fishery has got to be dynamite when... They drop those flows. I mean, the, that whole upper section, the low flow, has got to be full of steelhead. You would think. Spring, the springers. What's, what's the rationale? Well, the spring run that comes up in uh, April, May, March, April, May, um, they usually come up and they they come up and spawn in the upper sections of the, the feather, and it's just been so high, nobody's been able to fish for them. So it's, I think it's got to be Is that good. something we can still get on then? Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd wait a little bit till they drop the flows to 12 to 15, but in a year like this, they got so much snowpack. They could, um, they could have spawned anywhere and bounced out, huh? Well, I just don't I don't see them dropping the flows anywhere near like, you know, five or six grand or, you know, what, really? we're, what we're used to seeing is like yeah, about a thousand. Yeah. And that, then, the, then the water's clear and it's pretty fishable, but I, I think it's going to be churned up for a while with all the snow melt and everything like, coming uh, in the lake. June, July? Well, that's the delivery time of the year. So the... The flows usually go up that time of year because, you know, interest south of the Delta need water. So we, so like the fall might be pretty good or no, they, they, we don't have a, we're not in a drought situation anymore. So hundred percent of the allocation of water is going to go down to LA. The one, what they want, it's going down there no matter what. So and you got that, Westlands and, you know, current water. District. Well, is that good or bad for the fishery though? I don't, I don't understand. You won't have as negative effects in a year like this as you would trying to pump water in a drought year. Okay. Yeah, water water solves a lot of issues, but you know there's still a lot of others at hand too. You know, can't just blame it all on the dams. There's other things at play too. Mother Nature bats last. She does. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, Darren, in regards to the Feather River, you do a lot of fishing there, and you, you do a lot of research there. Tell us tell us about the the after bay and the effects of the dam and the flows, and and I mean, they built that thing to to warm the water and and for the rice farmers. But how how does that affect the fishery and and, and fishing to come? Well, it depends on the certain time of the year. Like in the in the winter time, the the temperatures of the after bay can reflect the the actual ambient temperature, air, air temperature outside. Um, and so what that happens is when they release that water back into the river, uh, it's closer, like if it gets down from to the after bay, right? You're, yes. you're talking about from the after bay? From the after bay back into the river at the outlet there. Um, say if it's like 32 degrees that night, that water's going to be close to like, you know, 38, 40 degrees coming out of that. Whereas, you know, the low flow where it's getting water from below, you know, lower down Underneath in the, the lake yeah. is going to be, you know, like, 48 to 50 something like that so you're going to see a huge difference in uh, temperature uh the same happens in the summertime when you have that bay warming up all that water um deliveries can be you know anywhere between six and fifteen thousand during uh during the summertime and you have all that warm water pouring out mixing with you know a thousand cfs of like 55 degree water um you're going to have uh, a huge difference in temperature below that which is going to affect you know what type of fish are down there um Usually, uh, when I've done snorkeling surveys in the past, I've never really seen uh, salmonid, uh, or salmonid, I guess I should explain, a salmonid is basically just any kind of trout or salmon. Um, but you don't really see much of that below the after bay due to the increased temperatures. So it has a has a big effect on the fish That's and where they end up. That's interesting because, um, just for example, so back in 97, we had 150,000 CFS come out of the um, spillway, right? Yeah, hundred fifty thousand, and then uh, in that last that decade preceding, they had some of the best steelhead fishing that that I've known of is in that high flow of the Feather River, and there were steelhead coming in in September, August, September, October. It was phenomenal, and then in this last decade of drought, we haven't seen any of that. And is that because the that just the low water, warm water has affected those fish and not wanting to hang out down there? Or is that? It? I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to dissect the the runs and why why that fishing has has been affected. But yeah, usually in uh, in low water years, the fish just aren't as successful. Like the water is right. warmer. The, right. You know, it's it's a lot. They right. get beat up coming up the system. I mean, we have a couple of barriers on the Feather River. Uh, um, the main one being sunset pumps. It's basically a rock barrier that uh, they, you know, they put a bunch of rocks across the river to back the water up, so that it was easier to pump out, and uh, makes it pretty difficult during low water conditions. Say, like we've had years where there's only 780 cfs, and we were catching salmon below that that were all scraped up on the sides. You could tell they had tried to climb mm-hmm. up that, and you know, they're pretty good swimmers. They can usually make it up, but I mean, right. if it's that much harder, that's just that much energy they got to use, and that's that much less energy they have stored for when they, you know, eventually do spawn. So it can have an impact on them, especially in the low water years. It just makes it more of a treacherous climb, you know, getting all the way back up to the river. So if that warmer water is coming out of the uh, after bay, what's the, what's the impact on just spawning and stuff like that? Uh, You probably won't see any below that, like where the water you know, is warmer. Uh, most of those fish, they go into what's considered the, the low flow section, which is from, uh, where the hatchery is, um, you know, all the way down to the outlet. And typically in the summertime temperatures are warmer there, or I'm sorry, in the summertime temperatures are typically cooler in the low flow. And in the wintertime, they're actually warmer oh. in the low flow. So 
you know, the fish that want to avoid the extremes usually hang out in there. So it sounds like they've created a perfect environment for steelhead salmon to go spawn in the upper stretches of the feather river. And then when all those fry and, and hatchlings come down into the warm water that are filled oh, yeah, with striper yeah. and bass, they, they just they, get hammered. They get hammered. They got it, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. There's the, uh, the feather river is an incredible. That's a really sal- salient point is that what happens to those fry given that there's this well that's huge... why we need that's why you need a, a large flush of water that's turbid you know they can't see you just need that big push yeah to they get need those... a smoke screen yep i like to call it the smoke screen anytime the water gets guys, muddy. are you guys advocating for higher higher flows there should be a flushing every spring no matter what what the situation is if, if you're talking about conserving, yeah, conservation, it, conservation species. in terms, of, yeah, species, yeah, yeah. I've always thought they should kind of somewhat mimic the the actual natural flow. Like if you say you had a great rain event and it was like 150 cfs going into the lake, um, like they should reflect that some way in the flows coming out below it because that's that's a cue for the fish. That's how the fish know when to come up. You know, if you got 150 thousand cfs, like sturgeon are like, hey, it's time to go. We can make we can make it anywhere we want. Let's just go. But if it's all going to the lake and nothing's coming out, they have no idea. And that's usually why the Feather River doesn't draw as many sturgeon as a sack. It doesn't have the tributaries huh. that uh, that the when the rain comes that they you know they the flows go up a lot and then they can get up the river. The Yuba Yuba can go up quite a bit. There's a the basin itself isn't isn't fully contained behind a dam, so you have you know you can see you know a, a good storm and the flows can go up twenty thirty thousand. And sometimes that's, you know, when the feather's only at a thousand, that's what's going to bring those sturgeon up. And I don't mean to get deep, but nature finds a way at some point, right? They do. No matter what you know we do or that? what. You know who said that? Who? Uh, Jurassic Park, the, the doctor. Yeah. Nature finds Dr. a way. Dr. Grant? Yeah. <laughs> no, it was, it was uh, Jeff no, Goldblum's it was, it was, character. Yeah. Okay. Dude, I know you I'd thought... rather catch a steelhead that made it past... Every big striper that you know, he faced, he boogied right out of his way, skated this way, skated that way, oh, yeah, made it all the way back to the ocean, and then came back. That's that's the steelhead I want to catch and release. The sad and the reality ones that should that should spawn right. What, the sad reality tell, is the fish that actually do make it back to spawn are usually the the hatchery fish that they release down in the, the bay. The eighty percent of the, the yeah yeah they bypass a lot by right. dropping them off in the bay, but there's you know there's problems with that too because as a fish normally would go down the river they'd be kind of like smelling it you know if you will uh and you know they they say that uh one of the strongest ties to your memory is through smells um it's no different for fish so when a fish is going down they like they smell once a new you know they know when a new smell comes in and uh on their way back up they can kind of determine that too so when you release fish in the bay they don't have all that imprint um and so they can they have a higher rate of stray and so you can have like, you know, feather river fish going into the Yuba and stuff like that. Which so they're is, more transient. Yeah, which has created a huge problem with trying to create like a, you know, a genetic spring run strain. It's, we call them, uh, <laughs> we call the fish uh, late sprawl linters, which basically encompasses <laughs> all the runs of the salmon because like they're just, they're all over the place. And that's one of the issues is. Yeah, I didn't, know, I didn't realize as a novice fish, fly fisherman, I didn't realize that when those, uh, those hatchery fish are kind of nurtured they're actually taken straight down to the delta and they don't have to do that whole trip down no Is that right they don't have to face the gauntlet okay and yeah. it's only the natives um yeah well the, the what we there's nothing really wild anymore 
um, anything that comes up and spawns in the river is most likely hat, uh, hatchery progeny. So like we don't really consider anything wild. Uh, I guess the green sturgeon is kind of one of the only things that hasn't really been, you That's know, sad. hasn't like, like salmon, sad. steelhead, everything. Yeah, nothing, eh. nothing, nothing's really. Consumed. So I, he's I being biased. He's being I, a he's being a biased scientist. So I, I can't scientist. like say, oh, if it if it's got its adipose fin, it's native. That doesn't apply. Yeah, anymore. like we, when someone catches a salmon, they're like, oh, look, I caught a wild one. It's got an adipose. I'm like, yeah, that's just one, you know, because they only do one out of it's every four. It's a generation four. away. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, we boy. like to call the uh, hatcheries uh, genetic differentiation reduction facilities. Yeah, that's why we fish barbless, and that's why we catch and release, right? Mm-hmm. Is that, no? I still like to bonk. Get your bonk on. Yeah, if I see an adipose, <laughs> he goes, no adipose. Oregon's Oregon's one of the only places that I that I fish that you can keep keep fish that are in hatchery. Hmm. Probably because they got a lot more water. They don't. They're not deprived of water like uh, California right. is. You look at the Columbia River; they get they get plenty of water. That makes sense. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. No, yeah. Thanks, Darren, for coming in and, and talking to us today. It was it was awesome. Appreciate your time. Yeah, very and, educational for sure. Oh, the honor's all mine. Glad to be here. Anytime. We'll have to have you back on once all the flows drop and you can actually see what happened to the river, too. Yes. Yeah. A lot of fluvial geomorphic changes going on there. Jesus, that's a word salad. Fluid geomorphic. Geomorphic. uh, Fluvial geomorphic processes. Fluvial geomorphic processes. Add that to your dictionary. (laughs) Nice. I like um, biological... No. What was the other one? What? Biological spawners? No, no, no. I said like um, something spawners. Broadcast? Damn Broadcast. Yeah, Broadcast. <laughs> Broadcast spawners. I'll make some flashcards. We'll we get all, you guys we down all know. Time. We've all seen our share of broadcast spawners. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us. This was episode three of the Barbless Podcast. Thanks for joining. And we'll, you guys will hear from us soon. Peace. Tight lines. Yeah, I should have said tight lines. (laughs) This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, FishBio and Amped.Build. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Build. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.build.